let's, let's start over. Man. All right. You know, what happens is that we are so blessed that we have so many other good teachers. Pastor Scott, Pastor Gabe, doing a wonderful job. Who loved Pastor Scott's message last week? Man, so good. So good. And thank you. Thank you. Um, it's so nice to get a break, but I tell you, when I'm not teaching, I have no idea what to do with myself. I was like, uh, okay, I guess I'll try and host online. I guess I'll try and do announce. I mean, none of it works. This is where I feel comfortable. So thank you for allowing me to, uh, to be up here and, and share a message with you guys. Welcome out there online, uh, Pastor Paphras in Tanzania. Uh, cool thing is I, I was able to get him the notes early enough this week to where he could fully translate them into Swahili. And that way, the whole message is going out in Swahili. Normally, he kind of, I think he hits highlights or tries to go. I have no idea how he does it, but, but it's, it's amazing. So anyway, welcome. Um, <coughs> I have a message today um, that I'm really, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to give it. Because it is, it's one that can be, um, it's not a difficult one when you first look at it. In fact, it looks um, childishly simple. Um, like much of the Bible, you look at it and go, okay, walk in love, love one another, do good, these sorts of things, like, okay, that's easy. But what does that look like in reality? It, it can be hard to put it in practice. And so I'm hoping today um, what we can talk about is, is a way to, to put what we read into practice. I mean, that's what this church is about, be doers of the word. Um, again, it's easier said than done. So let's get into it. Let's dive into it. We're in uh, Ephesians 5, chapter 5. We're starting out. We're going to just be in verses 1 through 7. Again, just a, just a small little bite. Now, just a, if you don't have your Bible, you should bring a Bible. If you need one, we have a basket in the table in the back corner. If you need one, either to just have, uh, take it and, and with our compliments, or just take it and borrow it and put it back. Um, but depending on where what translation you're using, Ephesians 5 starts out, and a lot of translations, in fact, most of them, but not all, have a little heading, like what they'll call it, like this section is, is called. That's not scriptural translation. That's just a helper to kind of give you a point, like an idea of what they're talking about. Now, depending on your translation, um, it might say, the heading for this section might say, walking in love and purity, or it might say, just walk in love. It might say, walk in the light. Or it might say, be imitators of God. Anybody have anything that's any different than any of those? Instructions for Christian living. So all of those are great, and it just kind of helps you get your mind around, like, that's what this section is about. So the last verse, if we look at the last verse of the last chapter that Scott talked about last week, Ephesians 4.32, it just says, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Classic example of something like, oh, that's easy. I'll just do that. But how do we do that? It's so much more than just, a, I mean, I guarantee some of us have seen like a Facebook meme or, a, or an Instagram little meme that says just that. And you look at it and go, oh, that's a nice, 
That's a nice sentiment. That's a nice little slogan. It would fit well on a bumper sticker or something. Like, okay. But how easy is it to do in reality? In a world like ours that is so filled with uncertainties, and what I mean by that is that things that last year, two years ago, five years ago, maybe in your childhood, that you would have taken for granted, like this is just the way the world is. Now all of a sudden you wake up and go, what's the world like today? And you have to look and like, let me make sure I'm all up to date on what's up, what's up and what's down and what's right and what's left and nothing seems certain. <coughs> anyway, Gabe, can you toss me that water bottle that's down there? I can catch. All right. Um, It just seems like what we considered to be truth, what we considered to be absolutes, are being challenged every day. Not a day goes by that you don't see something and go, that's not the way I understood that or I was taught that. But Scripture gives us the exact opposite. Scripture gives us truth. That's the same today as it was yesterday, as it was a thousand years ago, as it was at the beginning of time. There's no ambiguity. There's no, well, that's your truth, or that's my truth. You ever heard that? That's, that's your truth. No, truth, truth is truth. There's no ambiguity in it. It's stated plainly for everybody to know. The same a thousand generations ago, and it will be until the end of time. That's what truth is, and that's what Scripture is. Scripture is truth. So let's look at Ephesians 5 and see what it says about being imitators of God. That's how it starts. I'm going to read it, one to, uh, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to read it to start with. You can follow along or just listen. Therefore, anytime we see therefore, it means everything we just talked about. Take that, now add it to this. So hear everything that Pastor Scott taught last week. If you missed it, you can go back to the archives and, and listen to it. But everything we've talked about, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But, verse 3, sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no sexually immoral person or impure or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, See that no one deceives you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. All right, stop right there. Reading that or hearing that, does anybody have any objections to the truth that's contained in there? Is there anybody that hears that or reads that and just goes, I don't know if I agree with that? I think most of us would say, okay, that makes sense. So let's look a little bit closer. 
at what Paul is challenging this, the church in Ephesus with. The very first verse, verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Another example of something that just, okay, how do I do that? How can I be an imitator of God? It gives us a clue as beloved children. Children imitate their parents. Okay, anybody here have kids at that particular age where they're imitating everything you do? The good things and the not so good things. A lot of times that's how we find out about our own bad behavior when we see it in our kids and go, where did you learn that? Remember the classic commercial, from you, I learned it from you. But the good and the bad, they'll take on the attributes of their parents. All children do it, whether they want to know it or want to acknowledge it or not. I just, I turned 60 this year and I see myself doing things and I go, that's my dad. That's not me, that's my dad. But after all this time, so, <coughs> let's play a little game here. If I were to offer this church, offer all of you, a million-dollar prize for whichever one of you could be the best imitator of God for just a 24-hour period, like we'll get together tomorrow morning, and whoever's been the best imitator of God in that 24-hour period, you get a million dollars. So think about that. If I were to do that, what would you immediately do? What would you do first? What would be your first action as an imitator of God? Okay. Maybe a better way to put this is what would you stop doing right away? <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to put that question. But I'll bet that some of you when you thought about it, if you took a second to think about it, you heard that challenge like this. What would you do to act like a better person than the other people in this room? Anybody hear it like that and just think, I don't need to be better than everybody, just these people. <laughs> There's an old story that goes like this. It goes along with this image right here. Not that image. It goes along with a different image. Scott. <laughs> you forget there's a window back there, and I can see what you're doing back there. And the phone goes down. You're like, oh. Huh. I'm not pointing out any, but yes, I am. The story goes like this. Two friends were walking through the woods when they attracted the attention of a vicious-looking bear. The bear noticed them and started to walk towards them. The first man immediately opened his backpack, pulled out a pair of sneakers, and started putting them on. The second man looked at him and said, You're crazy. You'll never be able to outrun that bear. Oh, I know that. Bears are much faster than humans. I have no hope of ever being able to outrun the bear. Well, if you know that, why are you changing shoes? The friend asked. Well, the way I figure it, first man replied, I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. Anybody ever heard that story before? Now, I want you to take that same 
story and replace the idea of the bear with the word sin. This is how a lot of us look at the idea of righteousness and sin. I just have to be better than you in order to be righteous. And by you, I mean whoever your peer group is, whoever you spend time with. I just have to be the best one in the group. But we're not each other's model of behavior. We might help each other see what proper behavior is, but we are not the model that we should look at. Who's our model? Jesus Christ is our model. And we can't be content with being the least sinful one in the room, wherever we are. We can't be content with that. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. I'll just read it for you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In other words, you didn't know any better, but don't go back there. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, listen to this, you shall be holy for I am holy. So back to the question, what would you do to be an imitator of God? What would you do? Fortunately, we don't have to think that hard about an answer because the very next verse, verse 2, Paul gives us the straight answer. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's your answer. That's the answer. Walk in love. Another thing. Walk in love. Okay, I'll just go do it then. But how do we do that? We love like Christ loved. Sacrificial love. The word for it in scripture is agape. That word love in this context is agape love. If you've ever heard it, A-G-A-P-E. The definition is sacrificial love centering on moral preference, which means you have decided that you are going to sacrifice everything that you want, everything that you are, everything that you have for the benefit of another because you love them. That's what Christ did for us. And that's what we're called to do. Now, Scripture is full of many different kinds of love. In our language, love is, it's one word, love. In Greek or in Hebrew, there are so many different variations on the word love. There's typically in Scripture, there's four of them that are, that you'll read about all the time. Excuse me, there's agape, of course, we just talked about. There's storge love, which is love among a family, okay? You kind of have to, whether you like them or not, you kind of have to. There's phileo love, which is brotherly love. And then there's eros love, which is a passionate physical love between two. So those are the main four. There's actually a few others. But Paul describes sacrificial love like this as a fragrant aroma that's pleasing to God. This is why it's so important to study Old Testament scripture and not just set it aside and forget it existed 
Because if you're going to understand the fullness of Jesus Christ and what he did and what he came for, you need to understand what came before it. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Okay, we've all heard that. We all, whether we understand the fullness of it or not, we at least understand it. But scripture says it pleased God. You ever think about that? If you have a child and that child sacrificed himself in the way that Jesus Christ did for you, would it please you? It'd be hard to see that as a pleasing thing, wouldn't it? But it pleased God, not because of the act of sacrifice itself, but because it reflected God's divine nature and his divine love to the rest of the world. It was an act that people could see, unconditional, divine, sacrificial, perfect, holy love. It was exhibited right there on the cross. And when we see that, that is our example. There was no hesitation. There was no trying to get out of it. There was no looking for a loophole. This needs to be done, and I'm the one to do it, and I will do it for you without a hesitation, without thinking twice. That's why it's pleasing to God. That kind of love is pleasing to God. John 3.16, anybody ever heard of that scripture? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone that believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what that means. Jesus gave himself. Jesus already had that. Jesus was divine. He had it all. But he gave it for you so that you could have that too. And that is what's pleasing to God. And before Christ freely offered himself in order to save you through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, there was another method. There was another system of sacrifice set up from way back in the beginning. It was required by a just and righteous God that there would be a system of sacrifice, of atonement for sins. And so there's always been one. And so if we go back and we look at the Old Testament, the books of the law that, that are... that we know is the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. There's the Torah that Jews call it. They call it the Holy Scriptures. Did you know that Jewish people don't have an Old Testament or New Testament? Unless they're Messianic. They just have the Holy Scriptures. And it's what we call the Old Testament. But going all the way back there... It talks about this system. If you read Leviticus specifically, and I know the ladies did a Bible study in, Levi in Leviticus, it talks extensively about this sacrificial system. And it talks about, for our purposes, five types of offering, five types of sacrificial offerings that are commanded by God to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Anybody know what they are? I hear some mumbling, but okay, burnt offering. What else? Burnt offering, grain offering. You guys know this. You're just like, I don't want to be the one to raise my hand. That's okay. Burnt offering, grain offerings, 
peace offering, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Kayla, that's awesome. He's like, yes. Each of these types of offerings had a specific purpose, a very specific purpose, and a very strict ritual that surrounded how they were given. The high priest was the only one that could do them, or the priest, in, in most cases the priest, and sometimes the high priest on behalf of the nation of Israel, but they would perform them in order to reconcile the one making the offering back into God's grace and mercy. And the cool thing about that is that prior to that, it required your life. Your life was the price for sin. For atoning for your sin, it was your life. So this was a better system. It's not as good as Jesus, but it was better than paying for it with your life. Now, if we go back to these offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, those are described in Scripture in many different ways as a pleasing and soothing aroma to the Lord. Pleasing and soothing aroma to the Lord. Study Leviticus if you want to know more about this. It's it's an incredible chapter. But the Levitical priests were the only ones who who could offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, and they were held to a very, very high standard. We've seen the pictures of them um, wearing the phylactery on their head and just all the different things um, that they had to do. There was a special uh, garb that they had to wear. They were very, very strict in the way that they did it and the standards they were held to. Read Leviticus 21 specifically if you want more about this. It's a whole chapter on the qualifications of a Levitical priest. But now, though, we look at that and go, man, that's hard. Who, who could possibly hold that kind of a standard in order to be able to offer a sacrifice to God? But now we're told that as chosen sons and daughters of God, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you, we are told that we are all priests. We are all priests. Do you think you fit the qualification of a priest? Let's talk about it. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's you. That's you he's talking about. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you're being told, Peter, this is Peter saying, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's you. And the qualifications for that position now are equally strict, if not even harder, than it was for Levitical priests. Let me tell you what I mean. Paul talks about it a lot in Ephesians um, Ephesians 5.3, he says this, and there's other scriptures I'm going to share with you in a minute, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among the saints. That means you. You're a saint. 
Nobody should be able to look at you and say there's sexual immorality or impurity or greed. It shouldn't even be a conversation that anybody has. It should be a given. That's not a part of who you are. And then verse 4, and there must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So in those two verses, Paul has pretty much covered the whole gamut of, of human sin, the whole spectrum here. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think he goes and he talks, he says, no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking? Why do you think that's listed right alongside of sexual immorality? If we had a sliding scale of what was sinful and what was okay, I, I think most of you would agree, okay, sexual immorality, that's no, that's no good, and you stay away from that. Uh, but a coarse joke every now and then, what's that hurt? Anybody ever have that thought? You don't have to raise a hand or look at the person next to you. Why do you think it's such an important thing, though? The reason is, is because it is not a reflection of God's character. That's not who God is. And when we're called, first verse of this chapter, be therefore imitators of God, it's not very Godlike to do things like that. It does not reflect his character. One scholar put it like this. He phrased it really well, so I'm just going to read it and then quote him. Uh, it's unknown scholar. I don't know who, who it is. It's not that Paul is saying... Avoid these things so that you can be holy and be a saint. He's saying you are holy and a saint. Live your life in a way that reflects who he is. Now pay special attention to the wording of the next verse. This is verse 5, Ephesians 5.5. 5. I'll just read it for you. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, now, wait a minute. Didn't Christ come to offer atonement for my sins? Isn't that like kind of a pass? And even though I may occasionally do these things, I still have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, don't I? Wording matters. Paul's talking about, he doesn't say, no person who does a sexually immoral or impure or greedy thing will enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He said, no person who is, no immoral person, no impure person, no greedy person. What he's talking about is habitual sin, unrepentant habitual sin. He's talking about if you, if you sin and repent of it to then live a life that Christ has called you to, he's not talking about that person. He's talking about one whose life shows a pattern of embracing those things of explaining them away, of saying they're okay, it's not a big deal, it doesn't hurt anyone, not feeling remorse or shame or guilt. Paul challenges the idea 
that maybe a person like that hasn't really truly accepted the redemption that Christ offered to begin with. You may know him, you may say you did, but did you really receive him in your heart? Is he really the Lord and Savior of your life if you can do those things without a second thought? If it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't grieve you, if it doesn't embarrass you, if you're not ashamed of it, if you don't find yourself on your knees saying, why do I do these things? I don't want to do these things. He's not talking about somebody who's in a fight, in a struggle. He's talking about somebody who says, why fight it? It's fun. Why fight it? I'm okay with it. That's who he's talking about. He's even got a special name for them. We've talked about this before. Verses 6 and 7. <coughs> Excuse me. See that no one deceives you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. This was going on in their church at the time. There were people who were saying, hey, don't worry about that. You really don't have to be as strict as all that. A little bit of it is okay. That was happening in the church of Ephesus at the time. And Paul is saying, don't, don't hang out with these people. Don't listen to them. Don't let them influence your thinking. People that help you excuse or justify your sin are not friends. And they don't have your best interest at heart. What they want to do is get you in the pit with them. Because then we can all be comfortable in our pit. It's the person who tries to climb out of a pit that becomes a target because it highlights everybody else's willingness to stay there. So, to wrap this up, wrap this up. I'm doing good on, man, I'm doing good on time. Famous last words, right? So what's the point of what Paul is saying? Okay, I think it's pretty obvious at the beginning be imitators of God. But here's what it boils down to. As much as we would like it to be, sin is not a comparative scale. It's not a sliding scale. This sin is really bad. This sin is eh, kind of okay. And it's not compared to the person next to you or that one guy you know. It's not a sliding scale. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. Ooh, that's hard. James 4, 17 says, so for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Let me put the two of those together. James, Jesus' half-brother, by the way. For the one who knows the right thing to do that does not do it, for him it is sin. And whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. He's saying if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're guilty of all of it. What's included in all of it? Murder, adultery, hate. So he's saying if you lie, cheat a little... Maybe you have a little bit of envy or maybe you have a little bit of, uh, of hate towards somebody in particular. It's not okay. 
because if you stumble in that, you've stumbled in all of it. Remember what I said about Levitical priests being a tough qualification? That's a cakewalk compared to what we're called to. We're called to be better. We're not called to act holy. We're told that we are holy. We're not called to act like we love one another. Anybody ever tell you that? I'll tell you right now. I don't want you to act like you love one another. I want you to love one another. Acting like it and having it be who you are are two different things. We can all act like it. We can all put on our best face, smile and shake a hand of somebody that you can't stand. That's not what scripture calls us to. We're told to show love for one another by our unhesitating, unqualified, sacrificial love. We're not encouraged to act like we think Jesus would want us to. We're told that you have been transformed so you will act like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Ask yourself right now. Don't raise a hand. Don't look around. Is Christ your Lord and Savior? Are you in Christ? Are you his child? And if that is the case, if you say yes to that, then Scripture tells us you have been transformed. So all the fruits of the Spirit, peace, love, patience, kindness, goodness, love, gentleness, self-control, all those things, you have those things. The only reason that we don't always show them is because we have an enemy who wants to say, hey, you're better than that person. That person's not living up to where they should. That person's obnoxious. That person lies. That person smells funny. We have an enemy that wants to point these things out to us. And it's called pride for the most part. You're better than. Anytime you think you're better than anybody else, that's a demon spirit of pride lying to you. And it's one of the most easy ones to fall into. But you're a new creation, which means that's not your nature anymore. The enemy wants to tell you it is, and he'll drag you into that pit with him every chance he gets. So my question to go back to the very first question, what would you do to be an imitator of God? Here's my simple, simple four-step plan. Write this down. Be who God says you are and who he made you to be. Accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Live a life of humility and gratitude Here's the hard one. Give all that you are, all that you have, and without hesitation to those who God loves. And who does God love? Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that 
you convict our hearts that this wouldn't be just another message that I can check the box and go home, but that you would convict hearts to see when we're among other people, when we're among God's people, when we're out in public, when we're by ourselves, that we would immediately see those things that don't line up with your character. And we would say to ourselves, that's not who God made me to be. Because an understanding that Jesus paid the price for all of our flaws transformed us into who we are called to be, then we have no reason to let anybody drag us into the pit anymore. We don't belong in the pit. We are holy and set apart. So God, I just pray that anytime somebody wants to drag us into that pit, whether it's someone else or ourselves, it all comes from the enemy of our soul. And I pray that we realize it and see it for what it is and we stand against it and say, no, that is not who I was created to be. Because through that, then we transform this world with the love of Christ. And we then are truly imitators of God. Lord, we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to serve communion right now. I think Michael and Rhonda uh, will be over here. Actually, you guys can come over here since you're on that side. Make it easy. Gabe and I will come over here to do it differently. We also have self-serve communion in the back. We have prayer team in the back. Sometimes you hear a word like this and it just convicts you like, I just, I just need somebody to help me pray through this thing I'm struggling with. It could be healing prayer. It could be prayer to overcome sin. We have people in the back who want to pray with you. It's not an imposition. They got up this morning and said, I hope someone prays with me this morning. Take advantage of their heart. Have somebody pray with you. So go back there and do that. Communion in the back, we have self-serve by the, by the wall there. There's juice back there. If you want that up front on both sides, we'll be serving wine. And if you want that, you don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And you want to affirm that by the act of communion with his saints. That's why we do this every time. So as the worship team plays on, you're free to move around and take advantage of those things. Thank you.